Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, philosophy, pop culture podcast. Very excited to uh, share what we have this week for you. So as you dear listeners who listen to us every week and we love you, recall last week we did a boomerangerang around the Buffyverse. This was to celebrate that I had finally completed all seven seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And to celebrate that shortly after that happened, a Buffy reboot was announced. So it is back in the pop culture world. Buffy is going to be back. And I think it's safe to say that we have Buffy on the brain right now. So rather than do a game-themed episode around Buffy, we started wondering, you know, what kind of Buffy episode could we do? And one of the central elements of Buffy that I love uh, as the character Despite overwhelming evidence that the universe is a hostile, awful, and dangerous place, she never really seems to lose heart. She comes close a few times. She suffers, and you know, there, there are moments where she's alone. There's a moment where she loses. She loses her mother. Uh, she gains a sister who turns out to just be evil energy designed to kill her. <laughs> you know, uh, she has her friends you know, are there and sometimes they're not. She loses her watcher, then she gains him back. And But the, the consistent element of Buffy is that she maintains throughout all of this and fights with purpose throughout all of this. So it made me wonder, how does one go through life and not let the external objective shittiness seep into you and start to corrupt you. In the words of another show, how do you not let the bastards grind you down? Exactly. And Buffy never does. And it got me thinking of, well, is there a character in this show that the world does grind down that we could compare Buffy to? And to me, one character popped up, and that was Faith. Yeah. So we want to do an episode where we are going to be comparing Buffy and Faith. 
We're going to be discussing both characters. We're going to primarily draw from episodes from season three and a little from season four. But uh, consider this your spoiler wall. We're going to talk about all Buffy, so it's all on the table. And the idea that I want to explore for me is how does Buffy maintain? So I think the, the layers that we do this is first we want to just kind of briefly summarize where they are in season three. Um, discuss sort of the literary uh, tradition and the archetypes at play, and then dive into some of the core philosophical differences. Absolutely. I think that's perfect. Before we dive into this episode, you've been served your spoiler warning, of course, but if you want to join the conversation, it doesn't start or end here on the Midnight Myth Podcast. We are always ready to engage with you further. So check us out on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at The Midnight Myth, on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast and on Facebook. You can also head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com to check out some new uh, content that's up there. there. There's a blog post that I recently wrote about the upcoming Buffy reboot and some of my feelings uh, working through that. But we're always trying to update that with more content. And you can drop us a line on the contact form there. Also, if you haven't yet, head over to your favorite podcast listening app like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and hit subscribe and leave us a rating or a review so other people can find the podcast and hear about how much you love it. Yeah, so um, one thing that I, I'd like to kick off the conversation with, um, it's remarkable to me that in season three, how cynical both Buffy and Faith are. Right. And how they deal with their cynicism, I think, is the, the crux between them. So, And I say cynicism because it has multiple definitions and multiple meanings. And as we will come, I think they land on two different types of cynical outlooks um, by the end of season three, where, you know, Faith is now in a coma. Sure. But before we get into all of that, too, um, Laurel, you're pretty much a Buffy scholar at this point. I uh, do have a, a master's and a doctorate in Buffy. Yes. <laughs> not, not actually, but you, you should. I probably should. You pro well, you have the knowledge, too. Would you kick us off with just kind of briefly sort of summarizing the episodes we want to talk about and the, the basic gist of the plot. Because uh, Buffy's an old show. For those of you listening, you may not uh, have recent recall. It's not like we all just saw Buffy yesterday. Great. Yeah. So Buffy is my favorite show of all time, as I'm sure I have told you on the podcast before. Um, and it remains relevant to today. The general core premise of what Buffy the Vampire Slayer is, is Joss Whedon saying high school is hell literally. So Buffy Summers is the chosen one. She is one girl in all the world chosen to defeat the vampires, the demons, and the forces of darkness. And she moves to a town called Sunnydale in uh, Southern California that happens to be on a hell mouth. Uh, so there are tons of monsters and demons and vampires there for her to fight, and they never stop coming. That's the general idea of what Buffy is about. You probably already know that. But here in season three, where we're going to spend most of our conversation, we are in senior year, uh, of Buffy's time at Sunnydale High, and she's prepping to graduate and move on into the world. It's a formative coming-of-age uh, story that we're seeing here. Uh, Buffy's been the only Slayer for a really long time, and then earlier in Season 2, uh, after she had briefly died at the end of Season 1, another Slayer named Kendra was called. Kendra didn't last too long, and as soon as Kendra died, another Slayer was called. And in Season 3... Faith Lahane showed up in Sunnydale, and she and Buffy came face to face. 
So the episodes we're going to focus on the most in this podcast are going to be two episodes that run together called Bad Girls and Consequences, and then one episode in season four called Who Are You? The episode Bad Girls is uh, the episode you may recall where Buffy and Faith spend a lot of time slaying together, and Buffy gets seduced into Faith's kind of bad girl persona, where she is more interested in going with her gut and her passions than thinking and being, you know, truly philosophically uh, sound. What is it that they say? See, want, take? Want, take, have. Want, take, have. Okay, I got it. Yeah, so she's an animalistic character who will take whatever she wants, and Buffy gets really into that, and their relationship grows a little closer. At the end of that episode, Faith accidentally stakes and kills a human being, and the next episode, Consequences, is just that. It's Faith and Buffy both dealing with the consequences of the fact that a slayer has taken a human life, and they wind up on very different ends of the spectrum at the end of that episode, going in two extremely different directions. So those will be really fun to break apart in terms of Buffy and Faith's relationship to each other. And then the last episode we'll touch on is from season four. It's called Who Are You? And it's an episode where Buffy and Faith, through a draconian contraspell, switch bodies. So they begin to experience what it's like to truly be in the other one's skin. And I think they end up with a more powerful understanding of each other through that experience. Wow. So well, thank you very much. You know, I, uh, I, I think season three for me is where I started to really enjoy the show Buffy. I think the first two seasons in very much, I, I was a little on the fence about how much I liked it and cared for it, but through the character faith and through her relationship with the mayor um, and seeing it, I feel like that's when the show really crystallized and hit a, a thematic and dramatic high point because Faith and Buffy are really, you know, and you had said this, um, you know, while watching it and in prepping Faith and Buffy really kind of are soulmates. Yeah. And it like blew my mind when you broke that down because we tend to think of Buffy in a little more heteronormative terms. So the big debate is who's Buffy's soulmate. Is it angel? Is it spike? But in reality, it really kind of is faith. They they are two sides of the same coin. Well, imagine it. You are a singular superhero. You are one girl in all the world chosen to fight these demons and to have the weight of the world on your shoulders. There, She's gone through two seasons of being alone and no one truly being able to relate to her no matter how hard they try or how, how hard they fight along her side. But when she meets Faith, suddenly that singularity is no more. Suddenly that chosenness is something that can be shared. They can share that struggle. They can share that pain. They can share the power. And I really do believe that. I believe that uh, of all the relationships that Buffy has on the show, all of which are powerful and amazing, the romantic relationships or the familial or friend relationships are all extremely significant to her. I don't know if there is a more important relationship or more intense relationship on the show than what she has with Faith because of that shared responsibility and because we learn so much about each character through their relationship to one another. So this leads me kind of into the way you were uh, uh, introducing this episode, the literary tradition behind what Buffy and Faith are for each other. Um, 
The most obvious thing that I can bring in here is the literary device, a concept of foils. Uh, so if you're not familiar with that term, that essentially means a foil is a character who is brought in to emphasize the qualities of the protagonist. So they will use that a lot, and Shakespeare will use that a lot, with um, like Macbeth and Banquo, or Romeo and Mercutio, or Hamlet and Laertes. Uh, these are characters who may be sort of similar in circumstance or similar in geographical place, or they come up against each other a lot, but there is one key difference, or there are a few key differences to show you uh, that it amplifies a characteristic of the main character, like Hamlet, who's indecisive, or Laertes is a little more decisive in his action. Um, with Faith, when she's introduced, we see a character who not only looks different, she's got dark hair instead of Buffy's blonde hair, she's got uh, a more, um, a looser way of moving, a looser way of talking, a little less care with, uh, you know, how she speaks to people or what she's thinking. Um, we've got a character who plays a little more fast and loose with the rules, and that emphasizes that Buffy is a little more straight-laced. We learn so much about Buffy in season three because she's up next to her foil in Faith. Uh, and that character is introduced so that we can learn that about Buffy. But it's not just, you know, the characteristics that she already has. Buffy makes choices in season three based on what she sees in Faith. She says, I might want to be a little more like Faith in this aspect, or I might want to be less like Faith in this aspect. And I think at the end of the season, they go in very different directions because they've encountered each other. Uh, because they have been together, they decide that they want to boomerang off in different directions. Yeah, at first glance, Faith seems free in all the ways that Buffy is trapped. You know, so, and Buffy is deeply ingrained and shown in, especially the first episode, uh, the one where they end up staking the guy at the end, uh, not consequences, what's it called again? I'm blanking. Bad girls. Bad girls. That Buffy is in institutions. She's in the school, right? She's in the, you know, more traditional, though not traditional nuclear family, but a more traditional family structure. Yeah. Uh, she is listening and responding to the Watchers and the Watchers Council. Um, even though Giles is no longer her Watcher, Wesley's replacement shows up, and she does give him respect by virtue of his position. Right. Even though she doesn't like it, even though she mocks him, she still follows that lead. So Buffy is entrenched in institutions, and they have taught her skills for survival, like preparation, planning, uh, training, you know, and what she sees with Faith is a more naturalistic approach. Yeah. And Faith is more impulsive. Or instinct-based. It's enticing. She tells Buffy, what's the point of being a slayer if you can't enjoy it? Yeah. She comes in with a philosophy that pleasure is okay. You know, we see that in Faith that she's like, listen, there are rules for the regular people, but not for the slayers. So... And it's important to be mindful of that these are two teenage girls mm -hmm. at a point in their lives where they are in great transition and in great danger on a constant basis. Where Buffy has learned to cope previous to this is to put faith in institutions where and because Buffy has a family and friends and has had a, a stable, fantastic watcher, she's able to have faith in those institutions, whereas faith has none. Right, and she's been let down by everyone she's ever opened her heart to. 
Uh, she has placed trust in people before and constantly been rejected. Uh, the most recent relationship that she had before coming to uh, to Sunnydale was with her watcher. I'm not talking about a sexual relationship. I just mean the most important uh, connection that she's had with another human was with her previous watcher who was murdered in front of her. And so anyone she's ever opened up to has let her down. So this character who has so much in common with Buffy, uh, just on a cosmic level, comes to Sunnydale and shows this entirely different circumstance that a slayer could be brought up in and how much that can truly affect your attitudes, your beliefs, your virtues, and your principles. And that leads faith into this, um, just as you were saying, this belief that maybe there are different rules for those who are exceptional. Uh, and that reminds me of something you were talking about with The Handmaid's Tale with Nietzsche and the ruling morality versus slave morality or the uh, concept of exceptionalism where sometimes faith believes that the rules aren't going to apply to her because she has special abilities. And so she might as well fight to, uh, to increase her own pleasure. And the other thing, too, is that objectively, the rules don't apply to slayers. They don't. They don't have normal rules. They don't apply to the normal standard morality doesn't actually apply to them. But what Faith does is she puts a name on it yeah. and she says it's okay to enjoy it. Yeah. You know, and that is very enticing to Buffy. And she's at a point right now where she's just like, yeah, I'm going to school, but why? Right. I'm, I'm probably going to be dead tomorrow anyway. If not tomorrow, then it's going to be soon. You know, I might as well go out, kill a bunch of vampires and then party the night away. Yeah. And as Buffy is tempted and is into this, she starts to distance herself from her friends, you know, from Willow and Xander. She starts to distance herself from Giles and Wesley. Mm -hmm. And in that carefree mentality, they see the bloody consequence of that. Yeah. And the bloody consequence is the accidental killing of a human. And it is a line by which Buffy and Faith have not crossed. Right. And like the Rubicon, once crossed, it cannot, it cannot be undone. Absolutely. And from there, we see that while Faith may feel freer, may seem freer, she ends up boxing herself in to, an, to a, having no other friends and allies except for ultimate evil in the mare. Yeah. So the other literary tradition that I wanted to bring up with regard to faith is uh, is similar to the idea of the foil, but goes a little darker and a little more supernatural. And it took uh, it took major hold of uh, literature in the Gothic period and the Romantic periods, mostly the 19th century. Um, and this is a period I've talked about before that I really love. Um, but there was a a definite. Um, interest in feeling overthinking in this literature, which isn't to say that one is better than the other, but these were deeply felt um, pieces of literature by Shelley and Byron and Mary Shelley and the like. Uh, but this is the idea of the doppelganger. So where a foil comes in and is markedly different from the protagonist in order to emphasize a piece of them, the doppelganger is almost always a more sinister figure. And the German translation uh, of that word literally means, means double-goer. Uh, and it's inspired by the mythic tradition of twins, or of evil twins especially, if you think of Cain and Abel from the Bible, or if you think of Romulus and Remus. 
Those are stories that are um, are foundational to us, but they contain this this level of uh, of twinning of uh, of great likeness and great difference that leads to bloody consequences. And faith very much is that for Buffy. She is a dark shadow of what Buffy could be or what Buffy believes that she is. She comes into the picture and shows us that different circumstances create a different slayer. And that slayer might be because of their upbringing, because of how they have been uh, introduced to the world, more prone or more, um, more likely to go down a darker path unless they have serious intervention. And Buffy tries to be that intervention, but they find out that it's a little too late for Faith to be saved. But that doppelganger relationship is really powerful in literature and in pop culture. We have seen it recently. There's a very similar relationship to Buffy and Faith, I think, in Black Swan, um, where the character of Nina is kind of psychologically broken apart into two different characters. Um, And one is the white swan, one is the black swan. Only by actually finding a way to marry the two and realize that that's a fractured uh, personality or that's a a broken way to look at it, can she find any peace? And only by reconciling herself with faith can Buffy find any peace. Interesting. Um, so you think Buffy needs to reconcile with faith to find peace. It's, a, it's an interesting statement because I kind of feel like the show takes an opposite stance. Once we get to seven, it is faith who needs to reconcile with Buffy to find peace. Well, and, and I'm looking at it from, so I'll back up a little bit. I'm looking at it from sort of a psychological perspective at this point um, okay. where we kind of dig into if we jump from the sort of emotionally felt literature into the psychological pull of what's behind that, we can jump into Freud, we can jump into Jung, and the idea of the shadow. Um, both of those psychologists had a um, a belief that there was a shadow side of the personality, but they had sort of different opinions about what that meant or what the ultimate goodness or badness of that was. But essentially, it says that there is a repressed part of all of us, or there is a part of us that lives subconsciously below the surface that we are afraid to let out. And if we are repressive of it, if we keep on locking it up in the cage inside our minds, then it will consume us or it will harm us like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, But if we are able to let it out in... Uh, constructive ways, if we were able to reconcile ourselves with it, then we can become more fully realized human beings. And if we look at faith as sort of Buffy's psychological shadow, she brings out some of those uh, those repressed feelings in Buffy of wanting to go with her gut, of wanting to believe that maybe she's better than others. Buffy has to recognize those urges in herself in order to say, okay, I know that's part of me, but I choose something else. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you are saying that it is not the literal that Buffy needs to reconcile with Faith, the character, in order to find peace, but she must reconcile with the aspects of her subconscious that aligned her to Faith in to begin with. Her Faith part of her, she needs to come to terms with and understand and control 
or she'll be the one holding the bloody stake with a dead body beneath it. Absolutely. I At got least you now. With regard yeah. to this season arc, because I think as the as the show goes on, the two of them need to reconcile with each other because they will always come back into each other's each other's space. They will always be drawn back toward each other because they are two girls in all the world chosen to defeat the vampires. But as far as season three goes, Buffy does need to accept that there is a darkness in her, accept that, uh, you know, there's a part of her that does recognize her own exceptionalism and then say, okay, I can be better than that. But if I ignore it, if I pretend it's not there, then I will be drawn to that darkness. And she nearly is at the end of season three. She slides a knife into Faith. She tries to destroy that part of her rather than face it. And I think she has to learn how to face it at the end. I gotcha. Yeah. So I'm, I'm totally with you. Um, and I think that is a really interesting take on their, their dynamic. Yeah. Very, very, very cool. So uh, I got a little ahead of myself, but this romantic idea of the doppelganger that's founded in that mythic tradition um, forms a really kind of, it finds a perfect home, I think, in Sunnydale. Um, in a place where you can have these supernatural occurrences every single week, or you can have someone come face to face with a perfect copy of themselves. And I think uh, the show, uh, the season especially, but if not the whole show, is definitely preoccupied with this idea of the doppelganger or of the doubled self. Uh, in season three, especially, we'll get into things like. There's an episode called Doppelgangland where Willow comes face to face with her vampire doppelganger. But we constantly have characters who are foiled with others or who have a dark monster self like Angel and Angelus or, you know, Willow and Dark Willow or Willow and Vampire Willow, Giles and Ripper, Oz is a werewolf. I could go on. Anya and Anyanka. There are constantly characters who are foiled with either a character who brings out uh, their dark side or a literal dark version of themselves, And we'll see that throughout the series. But none of them, I think, are as powerful as Buffy and Faith because the reason the idea of the doppelganger was so scary and so uh, easily incorporated into the gothic tradition of horror is because what it was really about was a shift in perspective and breaking apart your idea of what reality was. So there are all of these you know, pieces of folklore that will say, if you saw your doppelganger, it was a very bad omen. And if you saw your doppelganger three times, it meant you were going to die imminently. So tons of famous people will have doppelganger experiences, like Percy Shelley saw his own doppelganger, according to a journal, right before he died. Um, and John Dunn saw a doppelganger of his wife carrying a dead child before he got the news that his wife had lost a child in childbirth. Even uh, Abraham Lincoln has a story of seeing two, reflex two reflections in a mirror, one of which was normal and one of which had a ghostly pallor. And Mary Todd heard the story and said, I think I know what that means. That means you're going to serve two terms, but you're not going to survive the second one. So it's constant throughout this, especially 19th century folklore in America and in, uh, in Europe. But it's all about coming face to face with something that cannot be a, a, an impossibility, an anomaly. And there's no impossibility so impossible 
as being a chosen one and coming face to face with another chosen one, right? There, there's not supposed to be two slayers. There can't be two slayers. It's like running into your time travel paradox that breaks you, that opens you up to brand new perspectives. And that's why that's so scary, but also so exhilarating as, uh, as dramatic fuel. It pits these two impossible characters against each other and shows us their darkness and their lightness and what's great and what's terrible about them. And it's terrifying for both of them. Yeah, very cool. Absolutely. Um, I think it's interesting how playing on the idea and the theme of the doppelganger and utilizing that as well, that, that Josh Whedon knows what he is doing. The man can craft a world and a story in particular with an ensemble. And I think the driving home your point that Faith and Buffy's doppelganger relationship, though they're not doppelgangers in the literal sense, right. they're not identical, right. is more powerful because all of the other doppelganger experiences we see are temporary, often caused by external forces that are resolved through the plot of the show. Um, you know, whereas Faith and Buffy are more, unless until they, those characters perish are permanent. Yeah. They have to figure out a way to exist in a world with two slayers, one which has a penchant for mischief and one that has a more penchant for, uh, for lack of a better word, conformity. Right. Right. And that, that direct conflict and that direct, uh, you know, bumping into each other carries itself through season seven. The very presence of another slayer in season seven in faith undermines the entire, uh, the entirety of Buffy's ability to build an army. Yeah. Her authority. And, and it usurps and faith gets control of the army at one point. Yeah. Even though she didn't intend it, the very like fact that there were two slayers in the room meant there were two options to follow. Right. You know, and, and previous to that, it was all Buffy or nothing. Well, now that's Faith, they're like, well, Buffy just got some people killed. Let's give Faith a, a try. That's a really interesting thing that you bring up with regard to season seven, because that dynamic is present in season three when Faith is introduced as well. Faith comes into Sunnydale as a completely different personality, completely different type of person who would never have hung out with Buffy and her friends if they didn't come together through this, uh, this destiny. But she joins the Scooby gang and starts to almost single white female Buffy a little bit. Like she starts to share the same friends. People think she's cooler or, you know, they want to hang out with her. Or they're so she enthralled with, with Xander. her story. She sleeps with Xander. Um, it's, it's kind of crazy that she can come in and usurp Buffy's position, even if that position is just being one of the leaders of the friend group. Uh, that anomaly, that impossibility continues to exist as a threat to Buffy's social life, to Willow. Uh, it's a threat while it's also, um, you know, something that that could be a joy, finding someone to share your, your private pain and struggles with. So it continues to be this incredibly complicated and intense relationship that they have that builds and will never stop being this roller coaster. They'll never be friends, but they'll never be true enemies because they'll always, always be tied together by destiny. Yeah. I, I think um, if you will permit me, I'd like to pivot a little. Is that okay with of you? Of course, please. Um, some, not a full midnight myth boomerang, but 
What I found interesting in trying to understand the perspectives of Faith and Buffy, in particular in those two episodes in season three, as I, I said in the beginning, is how cynical they both are. Um, so I want to flesh out sort of the the ideas of cynicism and what it means to be cynical and how they relate to Buffy and Faith's relationship and where it ultimately how they diverge, even though yeah. I would say they still are cynical at the end of these two episodes. Cool. But they diverge in their type of cynicism. Um, so for starters, cynicism as a school of thought is fucking old. It started in the 4th century before the Common Era, 4th century BCE in ancient Greece. The cynic philosophy traces itself back to the lineage of Socrates. The first cynics were said to follow in Socrates' example, though they diverge from Plato and Aristotle. Uh, cynicism is a pragmatic philosophy, meaning that it doesn't deal with deep metaphysics, complex ethical problems, uh, in ancient Greece, philosophers were also supposed to predict natural phenomenon. Uh, they didn't care about predicting national or predicting natural phenomenon. Wow, that's hard to say twice in a row. <laughs> um, and their name cynic comes from the ancient Greek word for dog-like, which was originally used as an insult. They believe, but here's the other thing: wow. the cynics never wrote anything down themselves. So everything that we know about the ancient cynics comes from what others wrote about them. So there can be a disconnect in who these cynics actually were and the stories that were written about them. All that being said, um, dog-like was originally used as an insult that they absorbed and they wore it as a badge of honor because to them, societal structures are inherently absurd. Social conventions are absurd. There is no point in them. There's no point in decorum. The idea of, you know, a class society with people higher and lower is ridiculous to the ancient cynic. Um, there's a famous story of a cynic who was met Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great met him while the cynic was just lying down catching some sun. And he stood and he looked at them and goes, I'm Alexander the Great. Who are you? And the cynic just responded, uh, get out of my light. You know, so you met the king of all kings nice. in the ancient world and you just said, yeah, get out of my light. There's nice. another famous one where a cynic spit on the face of Pericles, a very famous ancient Athenian ruler. Um, he just spat on them and said, why did you spit at me? He's like, that's as good a place as any to spit. The idea of the ancient cynic is to be aligned more with nature. Now, here's what the cynics aren't. They are in the ancient cynic. They aren't moral relativists meaning they believe that there is a right and wrong. They just don't believe that right and wrong comes out of societal conventions mm -hmm. and societal norms. They believe those are absurd. They believe that right and wrong is determined more by nature, which is why when they said that they were dog-like, they're like, yeah, we are. Because dogs are more like nature and hence are more moral than humans. Wow, okay, yeah. Um, they also coined the term cosmopolitan, which literally means citizen of the cosmos. Uh, there nice. was a famous ancient cynic who was asked, hey, what, what polis are you from? What city are you from? And to put a, a historical context, to be a person from a polis, for, to be from an ancient Greek city-state such as a Spartan or an Athenian, is a crucial piece of ancient identity. It gave you rights. It gave you privileges. It gave you status. Sometimes, by virtue of it, it gave you a reputation if you were an Athenian and an Athenian citizen, you were automatically believed to be smart, 
you were a Spartan, you were automatically believed to be a good warrior. And what the cynic said is, I am a citizen of the cosmos, a cosmopolitan, renouncing his citizenship. And in doing so, renouncing all the rights and privileges associated with the citizenship, isolating himself from ancient Greekness, um, which is where the word comes from. Now, the cynics are often viewed as the bridging a gap between Socrates and the Stoics, because out of cynicism came Stoic philosophy, which is immortalized by several famous Stoics, such as uh, Zeno, such as Marcus Aurelius, and Stoicism lived and prospered in the Roman Empire. Um, and because the Stoics wrote things down, we have a better, clear grasp right. on who the Stoics yeah, were and what we they lot. did. Yeah. Um, just other fun things about the, uh, the ancient cynics, just because I discovered this in my research and I think it's cool. Their patron deity was Hercules. Oh, cool. Okay. And when I think of Buffy and Faith, what better word to describe their power than Herculean? Yeah. They are just naturally strong. Singularly strong. You know, just by virtue of their birthright, they are in a prominent position, uh, can have tempers, do make mistakes, but who else do you want to hold the, the weight of the world Right. than uh, Buffy and Faith? So I feel like they are naturally very Herculean, aligning themselves with the, the, the cynics. Um, you know, after about the 6th century of the Common Era, where the Western Roman Empire really started to fall and collapse, so did the cynics as a philosophical school of thought. Um, there aren't too many people, when they say that using the word cynical, use it to describe it in the ancient Greek way. Right. They mean it more in the modern American way, which has come to take a new meaning. Like literally, if you Google cynical, it'll say a belief that, you know, people just essentially suck and you shouldn't trust them is the first definition. And the second definition is an ancient school of Greek philosophy. So the word itself has a dual meaning, fitting very neatly in our conversation about the doppelganger. Yeah. Cynical is a doppelganger of a word. It is. And just listening to your description of how this kind of school of thought and philosophy began and those anecdotes, it's funny because I was like, oh, sitting there and Alexander the Great walks up and, and says, hi, I'm Alexander the Great, get out of my light. I just, faith popped into my head. That's a very faith thing to do is to, uh, you know, be encountered with someone who thinks that they're in charge or authority and just be like, meh, not interested. But on the other end of the spectrum, it's also very Buffy uh, to subscribe to this kind of school of thought because she is a postmodern slayer, right? She's not, you know, a, a girl who is going to be led by men. She's not a girl who is going to be uh, influenced by others. She is a leader naturally, and she does so by bucking authority. She does so by questioning the institutions that have been laid out for her, especially the Watchers Council and the people who started the whole Slayer business in the first place, because she's a postmodern and post-feminist Slayer who is ready to take her power and be in full charge and control of it. So she fits, interestingly, into that cynical uh, ancient Greek box um, in a way that just continues to uh, to question any authority and question you know, being part of any institution at this formative stage in her life where she's about to like become an adult. Well, as we see in this part in season three, Buffy has lost faith in the Watcher's Council as they have separated her from her mentor right. in Giles by having him be removed. We're seeing her at the end of school. We see her in the third episode 
or um, in the episode Bad Girls, pardon me, in season three, we see her just like not care about Buffy, not care about taking a test and then just leaves. So we see that Buffy and Faith together are starting to, to realize these norms and these values that have been handed to us that we're supposed to obey, why do we have to obey them? They have a very cynical attitude to the, the structures that are in place. And where we end in bad girls and get to consequences and where that transition happens, where we see Buffy become much more cemented as a cynic in the ancient Greek sense, and then we see uh, Faith become a cynic in the modern American sense. To define the modern American cynic, you know, one just needs to look around. We are surrounded by it. Everywhere we see it, it is the fundamental lack and faith of people, institutions, groups. It's the person who is intelligent, hardworking, and motivated, but doesn't vote because right. it doesn't matter. Right. You know, it, and that, that level of modern American cynicism has been going around for quite some time. I'd say really culturally came out of what we now call Generation X and has been handed down to us. It is the, the, the one who rolls their eyes when a person of prominence or importance comes through. It is also a belief that morality is relative. Right. And faith comes to describe moral relative, relativism at the end bad girls. She in her, if I need it, I want it. I can take it. Philosophy is saying, Hey, morality is relative to your position, to your power, to the situation. And since I have the power to do something, it is de facto good that I do it. Otherwise, Someone with power would take it away from me. Absolutely. And that moral relativism with faith continues into consequences the next episode. Well, what we see is around the murder of the, the person, Yeah, Buffy realizes that there is a, a moral line. So though she no longer has the faith in the Watcher's Council and in school and maybe a little less faith in her friends that she used to have she now realizes that there are moral lines that she cannot cross. Absolutely. And Faith, realizing in that same scenario, says, you know what? Now that I've crossed these lines, I can cross whatever line I want. So I would like to read a quick quote about the modern American cynic, sure. if you will. Yeah. So this is from a German philosopher, and I'm going to brutally mess up his name, called Peter Solturgic. This is from a book in 1983 called a critique of cynical reason. And after reading it, I think it describes faith to a T. Here is the quote. Psychologically, present-day cynics can be understood as borderline melancholies who can keep their symptoms of depression under control and can remain more or less able to work. Indeed, this is the essential point in modern cynicism, the ability of its bearers to work in spite of everything that might happen and especially after anything that might happen. For cynics are not dumb, and every now and then they see the nothingness to which everything leads. Their psychic apparatus has become elastic enough to incorporate as a survival factor of permanent doubt about their own activities. They know what they are doing, but they do it because, in the short run, the force of circumstances and the instinct for self-preservation are speaking the same language, and they are telling them that it has to be so. Cynicism is that modernized, unhappy consciousness on which enlightenment has labored both successfully and in vain. Well off and miserable at the same time, the consciousness no longer feels affected by any critique of ideology. Its falseness, 
is already reflectively, re- reflexively buffered. Oh, that, it, that quote breaks my heart when you think about it describing Faith because she's a character who has so much intelligence, uh, even if it's not book smarts, uh, has so much actual depth of feeling uh, and depth of understanding of what's going on around her, and yet um, has lost so much that she essentially gives up. She's a person who builds up walls and won't let people in to say, "Hey, it can be different from you. It can be different for you," because she believes this is the way life is. People let you down. You screw up. You can't go back. You just have to keep your head down and keep going. And there's a conversation she has with Buffy in Consequences where Buffy is like, we really need to talk about the fact that you killed someone and I was there and we are lying about it and that's not okay, we're not killers. And Faith just kind of rattles off uh, tons of different philosophies at once. She's like, how many people do you think we've saved? Doesn't that even out in our end of the column? Don't, doesn't that put us in the good column at this point? Uh, or she says, we are better than other people. There are different rules for us. She just continues spouting off these excuses, these justifications, because at the end of the day, it'll keep her going. She'll get through if she continues to believe what she believes. And she's unable to see that there is a way out. And that, well, that breaks my heart. And the thing I, I I think is interesting about that with the choices that she makes leading up to consequences and it ending with her joining the mayor is that there really is no way out for Faith. Right. You know, I, I often feel that the circumstances so set against her, invariably, whether she met Buffy or not, she would have ended up in a dark place. You know, and and because of that, you know, she is both tragic and both also highly elusive, but also highly uh, intriguing of a character. Yeah. You know, because we see the mixture of both free will and fate in faith, intertwining and playing off of each other in a way that few writers can actually draw up and execute well. And I think that is what makes her so compelling to me, because it was both her fate to be a slayer, and it was both fate that being a slayer was something she was not ready for and couldn't handle, as well as every choice that she made boxed her into one path, which is the path directly to the mayor to become an instrument of evil. Absolutely. And there's kind of a a cosmic self-awareness about her. Once she makes that mistake, once she accidentally stakes a man and takes a life, as soon as that happens, a switch is flipped and she immediately sets out and goes on the dark path where Buffy, who obviously isn't the one who, who dealt out the blow and we don't know what would have happened if she was in that situation, what she would have chosen. But we think we know because her reaction to this is we have to go to the police. Like we have to do the right thing. We have to take care of you and we can save you. But for faith, there is a very conscious I am going to make a calculated move to weight this body and dump it in the river and then go and see if I can get a job with someone who is pure evil because that's better for her than nothing, right? The idea that she can have control over where she goes is better than 
uh, just giving up and being sent to the authorities. She needs to still have her freedom. And I mean, let's not forget that she tries to pin it all on Buffy too. Of course. Once it realizes that this is not going to go away, dumping the body wasn't successful, that, you know, this crime is not just going to disappear as if it never happened. Once that occurs, Faith's instinct is to go to Giles and to try to pin the entire murder on Buffy. Yeah, and that's what I mean about this cosmic self-awareness. And this is the sort of tipping point where we see who Faith and Buffy really become. Because, Because Buffy has had such a positive and functional and healthy relationship with Giles, Giles doesn't fall for Faith's manipulation and Faith's lie, which is significant because in that way, there's a institution that slightly gets restored to Buffy. And that's the institution of teacher and student, mentor, mentee, watcher and slayer. Yeah. And once she realizes that that relationship itself has value because Giles has value and they can help each other, she is more restored and she realizes that she needs to talk to all of her friends and that, you know, her goal is in that episode still consequences is to help faith. Even when they come head to head and fight. Yeah. She still wants to assist and help faith. Going to Giles, the restoration of that small institution is Buffy setting out on a path toward balance, right? So where uh, faith embraces that American style cynicism, that belief that kind of nothing really matters as long as I can just keep going, as long as I can survive and fulfill my pleasure, um, Buffy is able to embrace the fact that there is a balance in the universe, that there will always be somebody there to help you, that you can always reach out and get that help, even if it means you know not always being 100% independent. And, um, and in that way, Buffy is still cynical, deeply cynical, yeah. but more cynical in an ancient Greek way Absolutely. than in a modern American way. And I think we see those that, that, that doppelganger relationship between the two different types of cynicism because Buffy remains deeply cynical. However, she believes in fundamental moral law and she believes in that and she will fight for that and faith does not. And that's why when I was I was digging into kind of what philosophy does Buffy align with? And that's a hard question to ask about a 17 or 18 year old girl because she's still figuring out who she is. But I definitely wanted to explore Buffy's relationship to Kant, uh, who is a very uh, you know important and authoritative figure on uh, morality and ethics in philosophy. And I was reading a little bit of his essay, What is Enlightenment? The very first uh, first sentence of that essay is, enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-incurred immaturity or woman's emergence from her self-incurred immaturity. And that set off a light bulb for me because for Buffy, season three is all about emerging from being immature, emerging from the tutelage, the oppression of the Watcher's Council emerging with Giles at her side and saying, this helps me be mature. This relationship has helped me grow up and question authority. And it sends her to graduate high school and emerge from that structure too. So she totally comes to into her own and she frees herself from this corrupt power. And she chooses to live by her own inner sense of what is true and right, which digs more into Kant's idea of that there are 
like true moral rules that you can live by. Slayers don't kill. Slayers slay, but they're not killers. Where faith has always, always lived in opposition to uh, authority and power, where she has never truly tried to understand it, she's trapped in this perpetual immaturity. She will never be able to emerge from it. And that's honestly through very little fault of her own because she wasn't set up for success. And that's what's truly tragic about this is that despite the fact that faith has free will, she is climbing out of a really, really deep hole dug for her by her circumstances, by her family, by her trauma in the past. So it, it, my heart breaks for faith because there's so much untapped potential, but she is trapped in that immaturity and will never be able to emerge from it unless she gets a major, major sea change. Well, I feel like in season seven, faith comes around. Oh, for sure. She you has know, a like, wide redemption arc. Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, you know, three things I want to point out about ancient cynicism as they relate to Buffy, if mm-hmm, you will permit mm-hmm. me. Um, these are the three fundamental morals of cynical philosophy. And I think when I say them, first, they're in Greek, and I don't speak Greek, so I'm going to brutally F them up. I don't know why I, I didn't say fuck them up. I'm going to brutally <laughs> fuck them up. Are you going to speak Greek right now? I'm going to try to, oh but then God. I'm going to tell you what they mean in English. But these are the three sort of main pillars of cynical philosophy, and I think Buffy represents them um, all in mm. every action and thing and decision that she does. The first is eleutheria, which means oh, I've heard of this. Yes, freedom or liberty. You know, so that's the first moral truth: to be free, to have liberty. Uh, something that I think Buffy is constantly yearning for and fighting for and represents. Mm-hmm. I'll cut. Oh man, autokia, kia, autokia, which is self-sufficiency, mm-hmm. which also means uh, self-sufficiency is not only in a from a perspective of work, from a perspective of autonomy. It also means about your body. So it means being physically fit. It means taking good care of yourself. Things that Buffy does really well. Right. And the last one is parhesia, parthesia, which is freedom of speech and frankness. Mm. Other things that Buffy represents very well. Buffy will speak her mind to anyone and everyone, and she will never hold that back. To an ancient cynic, you must be frank. You must speak your mind and be truthful and not bend what you're saying to the situation. Um, Even if it's offensive, even if it is something that ruffles feathers, but if it is the truth, you say it. And Buffy represents that, you know, and so many times Buffy will just, you know, say the truth rawly to people, um, in particular to authority figures. It, I love that last one. And what I love the most about it is that the first thing I think of when I think of frankness and free speech is Cordelia, uh, who's another major character on the show, but is the first foil for Buffy, is the person who shows us, you know, what Buffy could have been if she wasn't a slayer. Uh, but then truly becomes integrated into part of the group. And so we're not only seeing those virtues in Buffy herself, but in the people she surrounds herself with. And that environment is is so crucial to Buffy becoming who she is. And Buffy being able to succeed and thrive is that support system, taking what she uh, what she can from people who inspire her and casting off anything that doesn't help her become a more mature person. 
Totally. I want to end with just a couple of thoughts on that same note, um, if that's all right with you. Totally. Let's yeah. Let's rock and roll. I just want to touch lightly on the the episode "Who Are You" from season four, where Buffy and Faith have switched bodies. It's a really powerful episode where both actresses, uh, Eliza Dushku as Faith and Sarah Michelle Gellar as Buffy, inhabit the other character so so beautifully, and it's incredible performance. Um, but those characters who are so different get to get a taste of what it's like to be in each other's lives. And that's the moment, I think, when it crystallizes more, more than ever before how Buffy succeeded because of her support, because she was loved, because she was treated well, and because she was buoyed by people who were ready to catch her when she fell. Buffy's a slayer who has lived long past any slayer before her because she was able to embrace not always being completely by herself, but relying on others who had strengths in other areas to help her. And that's not at all a weakness, but it's something to be greatly treasured and valued. And that's something that Faith never had. We see uh, an episode earlier in season three uh, where there's an alternate reality where Buffy never came to Sunnydale. And when she finally does show up in that episode, we see a character who is deeply hardened, who is, uh, who is bruised, who is cynical, and who is not ready to embrace love or embrace her own value. And we see that if Buffy hadn't made it to Sunnydale and found Willow and Xander and Giles and the amazing cast of characters who help support her and love her, she would have ended up with an attitude like Faith's. And so what I kind of hope for for all of us is that we know that we have that support system and that we can reach out and open our hearts and trust because those are the people who are going to save us from just drowning in our own deep well of cynicism. And if you don't have anyone sitting next to you, folks, reach out to us. We'll be there and we will be supporting you. You You know, we're here for you at the Midnight Myth, showering you with love and support and gratitude because if you're listening to this podcast, I know you're amazing. Oh, you know that my final thought in that similar vein is always to remember. And the thing that I learned from watching Buffy is always to remember to take what you consume seriously and always to think about it critically because what you surround yourself, who you surround yourself, how you conduct yourself, it matters. And in that same vein that faith and Buffy, under different circumstances, would be different people, is very, very true. And, you know, just take care to make sure when you're watching a TV show, ask yourself, this TV show made me feel this way. Why? Why did it make me feel this way? What happened that made me feel this way? And think about it critically, because you never know where it goes. You may find yourself in a discussion of ancient cynicism versus modern American cynicism, which is not at all where I thought I would be. And uh, in this episode that we did here, just by taking it seriously, I got there. And the last thing I would sit there and say is, uh, if you're feeling cynical, like like faith cynical, if you're ready to, to weight the bodies and move on, just remember, you're still loved by the midnight myth. Oh, that's and, beautiful. And until next time, be kind. Five by five.